If you would like to buy your own copy of the Guide to the Psychology of Eating, go to the Bloomsbury website and use code POD35, followed by your respective country code, US, UK, CA, AE, depending on where you're located. Leanne Chafee is Associate Teaching Professor of Psychology at the University of Washington in the US, and Stephanie P. De Silva is a Psychology Professor at Columbus State University in the US. Together, they are the co-authors of the Guide to the Psychology of Eating. In this episode, we will be talking about all things eating, including how our brains make sense of chemicals in our food that allow us to taste. Then we'll be answering why hunger makes us hungry, why comfort food is so comforting, how food reflects our cultural knowledge and values, and much, much more. Take a listen. Welcome to this episode of the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm your co-host, Wayman Cam. Unfortunately, Rebecca cannot join us today. But this session, we are joined by Leanne Chafee, who is one of the authors of A Guide to the Psychology of Eating, along with her fellow author, um, Stephanie P. De Silva, who also can't be with us today. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Leanne. Really excited to get into discussing the book. Wonderful. Thank you for having me today. Could you tell us a bit about why you decided to write this book? Yes, of course. You know, if you think about how you spend your time each day and what you think about, you would notice that we spend some time thinking about when your next meal is and what you're going to eat. We know that eating and drinking are these necessary everyday components of life, but a lot of coursework in psychology neglects or overlooks the importance of the psychology of eating. In the past three decades or so, the psychology of eating has increased or become more popular as a subdiscipline or area of psychology that's studied and given more attention to. And so our motivation for writing this book comes from support for that scholarly investigation and the teaching of eating in the psychological science. Also, you know, in spending over a decade teaching undergraduate students, their insights and intuitions and cognitions about eating are really fascinating. And it's wonderful to learn more from them as well as a teacher. And I felt as though one way that I could honor all of the contributions of my students to my work is to write this book and show what I've learned from working with them as well. Great. Yeah, it does sound like a really fascinating area of psychology and certainly not one that I thought about in like a sort of studied way. Could you tell us about how the brain makes sense of the chemicals in foods that we taste and smell? Like, you know, if we want to go back into sort of like the biology side of psychology, does the presentation of food influence its acceptance of flavor? I mean, I think I can guess, but obviously it would be great to hear from you about that. Right. So when we think about sensation and perception, we can think about it from a bottom up perspective. So the taste buds in our tongue, the gustatory receptors, then transmit information to the brain where it's processed, and it moves up to higher brain regions for integration, right? Same with sense of smell, start with the olfactory receptors, up to the brain, higher levels for integration. But that's only part of the story. Right. The other influence is a top-down influence by which are higher level thought processes, cognitions, emotions, memories, then influence our perception of the world. So maybe you have a conditioned taste aversion because you had a bad experience when you were ill or with a certain food or beverage, or your expectations for how things should look are based on your memories and past experiences, right? I think one 
funny example of the way that these higher level thought processes influence our acceptance or our preferences for taste and um, smell. The researcher Paul Rosen writes a lot about disgust. And disgust is a fun, I don't know, window into how we think about emotions and food together. And he describes something called sympathetic magic, where one cockroach can ruin a bowl of cherries but if you add cherries to a bowl of cockroaches, it doesn't really improve their, you know, palatability of those cockroaches. And so no, this course. shows yeah, laws of contagion around these top-down processes. I love that phrase, by the way, sympathetic magic. That's fantastic. Yeah, I think a lot of people, especially over the last sort of couple of years, as I feel like food writing has had a resurgence, especially on like social media, they're really starting to think about and talk about emotions and food. There's a real explosion of it on the internet. So we talk a lot about, for example, comfort food. That's a very sort of common emotional like phrase. So I was just wondering, like, are there any common characteristics for that particular sort of emotional link with food? And also, why do certain meals make us feel good when we're stressed? Of course. Well, any goal-directed behavior if we look at humans and animals, requires the reward system in the brain or relies on the reward system. And so activation of the reward system is a very powerful motivator of behavior. Eating, of course, is one of these important goal-directed behaviors essential for survival. As with social connection or even using psychoactive substances would activate the reward system. So when we consume comfort foods, these tend to be foods that are highly palatable. So they're very rich in like fats, usually also sugar. And those foods are going to more readily activate the reward system or hedonic hotspots in the brain. The more we activate that system, the more motivated we are to continue to consume those substances. And also that's going to release feelings of pleasure, endorphins, and it's going to feel good as we eat them, maybe even helping us to overcome a bad mood or a hard day. Part of like, I think comfort food, for example, or like emotional links to food, and I find that people talk about this a lot, is cultural associations, social associations as well. So I was just wondering, like, in what ways do... The food we eat like reflect our cultural knowledge and values. In what ways do contemporary policies support like cultural values related to eating? Again, that's something that like a lot of food writing in the last sort of decade or so has really talked about a lot on the internet. But obviously from a psychology point of view, that's not something I think I see talked about a lot. Right. I mean, that is a huge question. So I think there's two things going on here. One is so we think about in individual preferences of comfort foods or individual ideas about comfort food. These are obviously influenced by the home and the community and the culture, which we grow up on in you know, crucial developmental periods. And so the foods that are available and those that are presented to folks in times of you know, need when they might need comfort are going to be partially dictated by norms and values of that family, community, or culture. On top of that, our family and community and culture is situated in this, you know, geopolitical systems that we all live in. And when you're mentioning policy, it's difficult in discussion of food to fully differentiate the influence of culture, policy, and geographic location on the foods that are available. Those are all the valid and important influences. So if we think about, yeah, culture, policy, and geography in comfort foods, 
culture, of course, the foods that are available or considered to have certain values for a family, you know, perhaps a soup is thought to have medicinal values, right? We see that across many different food cultures. And then that specific soup would be presented to an individual who is ill or is having a bad day. On top of that, policy influences the foods that are available and the foods that are valued. We communicate a lot about what foods are thought to be you know, good foods and bad foods based on their availability and the price points by which they are available. Geographic location is going to influence this as well. We see a lot of influences of geographic location on cuisine, for instance, in the ingredients that are available and the seasonings and flavorings that are used. This points us to what the definition of cuisine is. When we think about a cuisine or an individual aspect of that cuisine, like a defined or identified comfort food, we expect that a cuisine is a combination of the foods or ingredients that are used, the technologies or techniques, perhaps if there's a special oven that's used or, you know, throwing pizza dough in a specific way. Seasonings, spices, flavorings that are used, those are going to depend on geographical region as well as, you know, culture and values. And then lastly, the rules and guidelines. You know, what is your biggest meal of the day? Do you have certain holiday meals? These rules and guidelines are dictated by, you know, family, community and culture as well. Yeah, that makes sense. It's something that I, I think about a lot because I I know loads of people call themselves foodies, but I I really love food. And obviously, like London's a really great place to um, explore via food. And as I think like food policy, food writing, it's all like influenced by things like immigration, but also, you know, government policy and so on. It makes sense. Like when I think about what people place value on in terms of like ethnicity and food or culture and food you know you often think about like why are people like willing for example to pay you know a slightly higher price point for something you know that's Italian like basically European and whereas like I find that a lot of you look at the food blogs or people on on social media who you know for example go to like a a good like Thai or Chinese place or something like that or you know like more like Southeast Asia for example which I tend to eat quite a lot of and sometimes people are just like, this is really expensive. And I'm like, but you're willing to pay like, you know, a certain amount for, say, for example, a nice like Italian meal. You know, it's really like telling like how consciously or unconsciously value is like placed on something culturally through what you're willing to like pay for something. Yes, absolutely. And I think on top of that, there's this question of authenticity, right? We expect that authentic European food might have a higher price point than this expectation of authentic East Asian food or Southeast Asian food might have a lower price point. And that we should ask us ourselves, you know, where does that bias come from? Why do we think that way? And why do we place certain values on some cuisines over others? I'm also very fortunate to live in a wonderful food environment in Seattle, in Washington state in the US. And yeah, just amazing access to all kinds of different global cuisines, especially, you know, East Asian cuisines. And we have that same bias. And this points at sort of the inextricable link between society and food and that we can see hints at the way we think about, you know, places and people through the way that we treat the cuisine. And yeah, I guess, as I said before, this, this should make us ask ourselves why we will, are willing to pay more and value ingredients and food workers from some cuisines in a different way than others. Mm. I was just wondering about, so, you know, we've now talked a little bit about how our perception of the cultural value of some foods is tied up in, for example, race or ethnicity, but our perception of habits or diets, you know, different food habits and diets is also 
obviously, you know, as a societal thing that we all have to do. It's also tied up in, for example, class and gender and age and more than that. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that that you talked about either in the textbook or that you teach generally. Yeah, we see some important economic gradients and cost of food items that vary globally in, you know, industrialized nations like in the UK and in the US, we see that there the price gradient where it shows that fresh fruits, vegetables, lean protein, you know, animal proteins, fish, the types of food that we consider to be healthy, which and I despise that term because it's so loaded, but those foods cost more you know, per energy, per volume than foods that are convenience foods that are readily accessible, like, you know, chips or, you know, things that have a lot of, you know, nutrient or a lot of calorie density, energy density, but low nutrient value as we would consider them. That's not the case everywhere. That economic gradient by which convenience foods are cheaper does not exist all over the world, particularly in more rural or developing regions. We don't see that same pattern. That gives some clues about socioeconomic status and diet quality, particularly in the industrialized world. And we have a lot of questions about the long-term consequences, and we're already seeing the long-term consequences of this relationship between socioeconomic status and diet quality and the long-term implications for health. Yeah, I think especially like right now where there's a lot of disruption to supply chains because of COVID, and then also obviously like the war in Ukraine, like affecting supplies of like certain foods. It's really highlighting like how, well, how easy it is actually to, I think, to disrupt the food chain, but also I think how some nations are prioritized above others or have their voices like the loudest when it comes to something which is like so, it's a basic human need. I would say a right, but access is not equal everywhere as you've just talked about. But yeah, it's, it's kind of astonishing like how easy it is for something like that to just suddenly be disrupted. Yes, absolutely. And this is a lesson we've learned over and over again, that we disrupt the global supply chain. Like, you know, Ukraine is called the breadbasket of much of the world. And this is a supply chain that's been disrupted before, and it has really significant consequences. And we're about ready to see them worsen again. Good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) This is not at all frightening. That's obviously something which it's not exactly global health policy, but it is obviously affected by governmental decisions, international governmental decisions. And I was just wondering about, again, this is a big question, but does public health policy influence the way we think about food in general, or does societal thinking about food influence public health policy? Like I said, another big question, but it just made me think about how policy and society influence each other. Definitely a big question. You're really bringing them today, Ming. So <laughs> this relationship is obviously bi-directional because if we look at public health recommendations in different areas of the world, we see some similarities and we can assume that those are very grounded in evidence and we see other differences and we can assume that those differences are more grounded in cultural belief systems and values. So in the US, we have this very funny food guide system by which there's some image It used to be a pyramid, now it's a plate, where it indicates what proportion of your diet should be from different foodstuffs, right? And in this, those proportions, you know, what should be fresh produce versus lean protein versus grains, those are going to vary globally. In general, public health policy should be universal in some ways, right? We assume that people should have access to food, all humans need food. On top of that, 
those public health policies that unfortunately come from the countries with the loudest voices are very much influenced by industry. I wish that there weren't conflicts of interest in public health policy, but I think we're at a time in history where it's more obvious than ever. The way that you know profitability of large corporations can influence the decisions that a government or a you know a public health office makes. One place in the U.S. that to me is very obvious is in the way that BMI is used. Body mass index was in when it was first you know defined by. Adolf Quitlet. It was defined to measure averages across the population, specifically of white European men. It was not designed to measure individuals. Additionally, Quitlet was not a good person and was basically a eugenicist. And so it's not surprising that then BMI was not representative of others and that now the way that it's used is even more problematic. We know that BMI is not a valid predictor of adiposity. We know that it's especially poor predictor of adiposity for females as compared to males and for historically minoritized populations as compared to white European males. And so BMI is entrenched in public health policy around diet and nutrition in many areas of the world. And we know it's faulty and it was faulty from the get-go and we've always known that it was faulty. And so to me, this is a place where perhaps culture has a potential to influence public health policy for the better. The cultural consciousness around weight bias and how we think about and talk about weight, I think is more inclusive now than it has been for the last three or four decades. And I hope that it continues to be more inclusive and that this will lead to changes to the way that we measure and consider the relationship between weight and health. Something that I've wondered from time to time, like the issue of BMI not being a good representative, no policy, I think no measure is like perfect, but since I think a lot of the general public do know that BMI isn't a totally reliable indicator of health, can you see that ever being like replaced by a different indicator of, of health at all? Or is that unlikely? I'm just wondering what it would take. Yeah, I think two things. One is there are movements to better operationalize outcomes related to health. The most I don't know, widely cited movement is the health at every size movement. If you just, you know, Google it, H-A-E-S, you know, Hayes, then you can find recommendations for other indicators of health. We could also measure health directly, right? If we are concerned that weight can impact health, we have specific outcomes in mind. So why not measure those outcomes that we are actually interested in instead of measuring an intermediate variable? One of the ways that BMI really affects like society is how it contributes to weight stigma. And I was thinking about what are the ways that we could decrease the prevalence of disordered eating? Obviously, you've actually just talked about one way which would affect health policy, which is to replace BMI with different indicators of health. But I was just wondering if there are other ways that we could start to help decrease the prevalence of disordered eating, essentially. Right. I guess a big way that we could decrease prevalence of disordered eating is, broadly speaking, more size inclusivity. So if we think about presentation, the way that we see and perceive shapes of body, there's many different body images that we could equally value. And that's not how it is today, right? Depictions of beauty, whether they're in media or advertisements, tend to emphasize a unrealistic thin ideal. So changing first and foremost, the bodies that we see for being more inclusive. Additionally, I think on an individual level, 
we can all stop and ask ourselves why we talk about and think about certain foods or certain shapes as being good or bad. We have ideas about what shapes are good and bad and what foods are good and bad. And if we stop for a second and think, why is it ever that human cognition falsely dichotomizes something, right? Like a food item doesn't need to be dichotomized as good or bad. And there's some researchers, you know, broadly speaking in this area of psychology of eating that argue that this false dichotomy of foods or moralization of foods as good and bad is because our contemporary food environment is so complex and difficult. And so faced with an abundant amount of options, this, you know, variety to the point of like hyper variety or micro variety in the supermarkets, as well as all of the messaging that we received around health are are difficult to navigate. And when we're faced with this complicated cognitive task, it's easier to simply dichotomize, you know, this is a good food that I can eat and this is a bad food that I I won't eat or I shouldn't eat. And it, it eases the navigation of the food environment. Now, that would mean that in order to decrease disordered eating, we have to have a less complicated food environment. I don't know if that's possible. That's definitely from disciplines beyond psychology that would teach us about how the market food items would change over time. I think it's also difficult because it's not just about, to me as a consumer and someone who enjoys food, it's not just about the huge variety of food that we have now in like a, a global market and, you know, with globalization being something that's been around now for, for ages. It's also about, for me anyway, it's the marketing around food, how we talk about food, things we see on TV, on social media, in the newspaper books, et cetera, food writing in general. I'm assuming that's something that you think about a lot as well. Like how does marketing social media impact our eating habits, besides the obvious answer of a lot. And what are the ethical implications of this? Well, I mean, there's clearly ethical implications because we know that marketing affects human behavior, right? That's why advertisements and marketing are are so ubiquitous is because they're effective. It doesn't matter what type of product it is. If it's presented in such a way that it appeals to your values or your needs, you are going to be more likely to buy it or expose yourself to that product. There's a variety of different shortcuts that our brain uses that marketers are well aware of in order to increase our buying of a product. We, in psychology, we think of these as heuristics, like speedy shortcuts that we use in order to make a quick judgment. It's easier cognitively. One example that is quite easy to see once you're aware of it is the health halo. A halo effect is when one positive attribute casts an entire entity into a positive light. So if you put a health word on a food item, it tends to make the entire food item as being evaluated as being better. And so you may see a claim of natural or organic on a food item. And these two words aren't actually interchangeable. Where there's rules around what can be labeled as organic, the word natural, at least in the US, doesn't have any rules around how it is administered onto food items. Then if you think about you know comparing two different packages of snacks, if one of them is natural or organic, it tends to have more earthy colors. Like the bag might be like green or brown as compared to the non-natural or organic might have brighter colors. And so there's these small tricks that can be used in food marketing or advertising that change the way that we evaluate the product, even with no actual knowledge of the product, just based on the label that's used. That makes sense. Yeah, I think about... (laughs) It's something that I think is done very differently in the US and the UK, for example, but I think a lot about kids' foods, especially things like cereal. It's not that like cereal over here isn't for kids, isn't like marketed as colourful. I think it's just done in a 
a different way. Mind you, I haven't eaten kids cereal in a while. But I do think a lot about things like um, what they're called Lucky Charms, for example, in the US. I only like account- encountered them in like real life recently. And I was like, oh my God, they're so bright. So it's not just the box, you know, it's like the actual like Lucky Charms themselves. I think that's like the most obvious example of just like how you associate like food with different, I guess, not just like cultural values, but of like audience as well as, oh, this is going to be sugary as well, for example. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the marketing of kids' foods in the US, I think, is especially egregious example of the fact that we overlook the ethics around food marketing, you know, and the health of the consumer at the expense of the corporation making money. Around the same time that we are writing this book, I also had my first child. And so it's, incredibly apparent to me how ubiquitous the use of cutesy little characters on food items are. Even food items, you know, veggie straw type, you know, healthy food items have characters on them like Big Bird. It's amazing. I suppose we've kind of maybe partly like answered this, but I'm assuming marketing changes across things like gender, race, class and age. Are there any examples that you could point me to or, you know, if you could just sort of talk me through that as well? Yeah. So, of course, with age, one of the examples that we brought up was marketing with children and characters. Then if we look at, I guess, the the current food environment with older age, we tend to see a lot of foods marketed as functional foods, as having some sort of value for like brain health or bone health that individuals are, I don't know, based on social norms, apparently paying more attention to in advanced age. So age is absolutely one of them. Then you also mention gender. And I'm not sure how ubiquitous this is globally. I've been very fortunate to teach in Central Europe a few times, and I see it there as well. But there's a strange idea about the association of certain foods and masculinity. Yeah, again, I'm not sure as far as examples beyond the US and you know in Central Europe, but we see things like large meaty things being associated as masculine foods and then being yeah marketed towards males. There's a writer named Emily Contois that writes about specifically social media and messages of masculinity or femininity of food. And it's very interesting. Unfortunately, there's probably some health implications for these differences and how foods are marketed to different genders. Where on the other hand, as we were previously talking, these messages around like a thin ideal or moralization of certain foods can be more targeted towards individuals who identify as feminine. With race and class, this gradient between social class and diet quality, we can even see in not just you know price points of food, but also in neighborhood composition, in the foods that are available and affordable to individuals who live in a neighborhood. We've likely all heard of the term food desert by now, by which in areas, yeah. Well, there's this, on the other hand, there's also food swamps. And this is another way to look at it where it's not so much that there's not a grocery store available, but the food that is available around neighborhoods, if it's more convenience foods or fast foods or, you know, high energy density, but low nutrition value, like Big Mac type foods, then we could call that a food swamp. And that has a larger effect size of a predictor of health outcomes for the community in the US, the presence of a food swamp than does a food desert. That is the first time I've heard that phrase, the food swamp. I've heard of the food desert before. No, that does make a lot of sense. I suppose you could probably map that very easily to things like public transport and the socioeconomic, socioeconomic like density of like each area and like the varieties within. 